This is the Thursday Night Podcast, your source for news, analysis, and all things Georgia State sports. Because every day is Thursday. Hello and welcome to episode 200 of the Thursday Night Podcast. My name is Jordan and I'm joined today by Brady and David. This week, we're marking the milestone of hitting the double century mark by having on a very special guest for the first time, the voice of the Panthers, Georgia State Radio play-by-play announcer, Dave Cohen. Dave, welcome to the podcast. It's great to have you on. Good to be with you guys. It took 200 episodes and here I am. It, honestly, at a certain point, it felt like it was waiting for the occasion and we knew this 200 was coming up. And at least in my head, I was like... And then we'll have Dave on. And it also lined up because it's, you know, a week before the bowl game and the last couple results in football field and basketball, not really wanting to lean into talking about, um, but also got to have you on just to cover just the span of what you've done at Georgia State. Um, We're selfish and we talk about ourselves. So I'll start with talking about me and my first uh, knowledge of you, interaction with you as the radio voice of Georgia State was actually... The game at Towson that we went to my freshman year after marching in the uh, second inaugural President Obama, it was a thing where there were a lot of Georgia State band people there. I think it surprised whether it was the team, if they knew, or certainly Towson fans. And it was kind of a game that they came back on. And SID Emeritus, I'm sure Mike Holmes was the person who did this, but he put the audio of the final five minutes of the game on the website after because it was kind of a real moment. Like the team came over and then I listened to that on the bus back. I was like, oh, this radio guy's all right. And uh, because I was at a lot of the games, I obviously wasn't tuned into the radio. Um, but that was a real moment. I was like, awesome. Love this radio guy. I enjoyed the days in the Colonial Athletic Association. I mean, every trip, except sometimes for UNC Wilmington, was an airplane trip. And we were up and down the East Coast basically every other week, whether we were in Virginia, whether we were in Hempstead, New York, out in Long Island, or uh, in my old hometown of Boston to play Northeastern. Uh, I enjoyed it. You know, you're in and around Washington, D.C. area sometimes. Uh, Again, Wilmington was the furthest south other than us. So, uh, you know, who doesn't like to go to Wilmington and go to the beach area? But I enjoyed our time in the, in the Colonial Athletic Association, to be honest with you. I thought it was a great move at the time for Georgia State once the decision was made to leave the Atlantic Sun because the, the old Transamerica and then it became the Atlantic Sun. It became a little bit of a revolving door with regards to members. When we first got in, and it was a really good league, but What the Colonial Athletic Association did was put us in a conference where you are who you hang out with. And guys, I don't know if we'll ever be in another conference where in a span of six years, two of our basketball members reach a final four. In George Mason and Virginia Commonwealth, people, hindsight is everything. People don't realize how good of a basketball league the Colonial Athletic Association was during the time period that we were in it with George Mason, Virginia Commonwealth, Old Dominion at the time. Um, And then Northeastern was a really good program when we got in it. So I I thought that the move to the CAA, although it forced us on airplanes just about for every road trip, I thought it really increased. Not only did it increase our visibility, it it increased our street cred as an athletics program mainly from a basketball standpoint, because we were only in it one year for football, uh, and that did not go uh, 
very well. But and and that was an eye-opening experience for us where we were football from a football standpoint. But from a basketball standpoint, which is what we were for the most part at that point, I thought it was a great move by Dr. Patton and the administration to put us in a league where we were now running with programs that were really good basketball programs. And I got us off on a tangent, but dialing it all the way back, like what was your first experience with radio play-by-play, even if it was just TV play-by-play that made you think down the line of something you wanted to do? Well, growing up in the Boston area, you know, when I was a kid, we didn't have cable television. You had the three Boston affiliates, uh, Channel 4, Channel 5, Channel 7, and then you had two UHF affiliates. You had Channel 38 and Channel 56. That was it. And so I watched a lot of Boston Bruins hockey, a lot of Red Sox baseball, Patriots football, Celtics basketball. Uh, But as much as I would watch it, if it was on local television, I listened to it on the radio. And a cousin of mine on my father's side um, had a radio show in the Boston area. It was mainly music, but when I would listen to him, I thought, well, how cool is that, that I'm listening to a relative of mine, and I know who this guy is who's talking on the radio. And so that was probably the first seed that I figured out I could talk on the radio, not necessarily about music, but I could take my love of sports and radio and do something with it. And after I moved down here, by the way, my cousin still owns the radio station in my old hometown of Lowell, Massachusetts. Um, Interestingly enough, that's not the station that I used to listen to him on, but he later bought that station in Lowell 980 WCAP and he still owns it. Um, When I got down here, I I think I can remember listening while I was in high school to Georgia State's radio station, and I heard Brent Weber doing a Georgia State basketball game. They were up at the University of Wisconsin at Green Bay, and I didn't know where I was going to go to college. I didn't know really anything about Georgia State. I had only been living in Atlanta for, I don't know, maybe a year and a half or two years. I hadn't really even thought about it. But once I kind of made that decision that I wanted to pursue something in radio, I remember my mother taking me down to Georgia State and we did the the tour and found out about it and I found I knew they had a radio station because I had listened to it and I got involved in WRAS and 41 years later uh, I'm still involved in it because uh, it still carries Georgia State football and you know most of the men's basketball games but I also didn't want to leave Atlanta and go to a smaller college town and then try to get back to Atlanta. So I, once I knew that that's what I was going to do when I came to Georgia State, you know, I only I went to school part time the whole time I was in school, which is why it took me from start to finish. It covers a span of 12 years. In reality, it was six because I was out for six years in between when I finally landed that first full time job at WCNN, which is now 680 The Fan. It was news and sports when I was there and we were in the CNN Center. But once I knew what I wanted to do, I went to Georgia State. I worked in radio the whole time, part-time while I was in school until I got that first job. And I never thought I'd be at Georgia State 41 years, but I met my wife in athletics. She was former women's tennis coach, who I did not know when she was the women's tennis coach because I had no interaction with women's tennis in 1983 and 84 and 85, in those, early, those mid-years in the 80s. But she got into administration. We finally met and uh, 
fast forward, both kids went through the subtle center daycare on the campus of Georgia State. And so she's been there 34 years and I'm going on 41 from the time I first walked on campus to December 14th, 2000, December 13th, whatever it is today, 2023. You know, obviously you're certainly a seasoned veteran, um, but you're also a seasoned veteran, both at Georgia State and just in the radio game, as you said. So I was curious if you had any, um, like what challenges would you say are different today than back when you started um, doing radio broadcasts and kind of learning of, and getting your footing in the industry? Well, it was more of a the the technology advances that I've seen s- since 1982 and 83 are like incredible. The things that we can do, just the fact that I can email. Well, first of all, there were no computers and no emailing audio and online editing and all that kind. None of that was when I worked at WGST, which is my first part time radio job while I was at Georgia State. You know, everything was uh, there was again it was before computers so everything was when i say hands-on you had to literally splice audio tape and then take a little piece of tape and tape it together when you wanted to edit out something it was such a laborious long process to do it whereas nowadays interestingly enough and brady knows this i do those daily practice reports for the radio station affiliate in gainesville I do those on my iPhone and I can edit the audio if I want to right on my iPhone. And then I just email it to Gainesville right from my iPhone. I mean, the days of carrying around a bulky Marantz tape recorder with a handheld microphone and then taking that with cassettes and then taking that back to the radio station and then literally splicing audio together. Just the way we do things today is so much, you know, easier but so much more technologically advanced than what we did even as recently as the early to mid 1980s and really early in the 90s when I was at WCNN, it was pretty much the same process until the computer became an everyday part of our life. And then the iPhone became an everyday part of our life, which is really in, in reality, not, I mean, we have not been carrying around iPhones that long when you look at the overall span of things. So I would say from a technological standpoint, everything is complete. Not, it's, it's completely different, and it's so much easier and quicker than the way we did it in the past. From a radio job standpoint, the industry has completely changed. It's tough to stay in it full time and make a living. Um, consolidation, in my opinion, has not been good for the business where one company owns multiple stations. We see that here in Atlanta. Uh, where we have one company that owns a television station, the only newspaper, and six or seven, however many it is, radio stations. Um, you know, they're able to uh, to basically run many of the stations from an automated from an automation standpoint, which has really cut down on the number of jobs that are available. So, you know, changes like that have obviously again, it all goes back to technology and the computer. You couldn't do that in the 70s and the 80s and really maybe into the early 90s you could automate stations to just run on their own like that the way we do now um i don't think that's it's good for the companies because they make more money and they have less employees and less overhead but i don't think it's really good for those of us that 
enjoy working in the industry and the young kids who are coming out of college or broadcast school who want to work in the industry it's going to be it's going to be tougher as the years go on when we have guests on that have a insight to i mean a lot of has happened in the last decade that we have witnessed personally with georgia state athletics but there are some moments before we had georgia state on the right like we're around for that some of them when we weren't even alive um that happened and so i kind of want to turn now to men's basketball makes the tournament for the first time in 1991 obviously when you had started out through the 80s um i guess we could call them gory years of basketball it was not particularly great and then 91 obviously the big tournament appearance down at the omni was the 91 team did it kind of come out of nowhere there as they ended up putting some wins together and getting into the ncaa tournament against arkansas or was it not nearly as sudden as it looks as you look back as oh, i can go by the schedule it seemed like it was a little bit sudden it was i mean and i i remind people that uh that 1991 team and i'm interestingly enough i'm still in touch with the i don't know four or five of the guys that are on that 90 that were on that 91 team they were only 13 and 14 in the regular season they did not have a great season like you would think and ultimately end up being in the NCAA tournament. They had never won a conference tournament game since we had joined the Trans-America Athletic Conference. Let me just back that up a second. When I got there in 82-83, they had come out of the Sun Belt and they were independent. So when I got to Georgia State, there was no conference affiliation. They were an independent program. Then they joined the Trans-America Athletic Conference not the transatlantic as some people called it it was trans-american and i gotta be honest with you it was a really it was a good league back in the day uh georgia southern was in the league arkansas little rock was a great program back in the day uh university of texas at san antonio was in the league uh centenary college in shreveport louisiana uh they were really good when we first got in the league i know it's not i know it's a school not a lot of people are familiar with but they were good and they had you know, a couple of guys that reached the, the NBA. Um, but Georgia State, you know, we were playing in the sports arena. It didn't look in 83 and 84, my first few years, it didn't look as good as the sports arena looked when you started going to it. It was very basic. It was a recreation building. I had to constantly remind people, look, they made fun of the fact that we had a Georgia State basketball gymnasium on the third floor of a building i said well it's this is a rec center this was never built to be a division one basketball arena and uh so they eventually made some upgrades with the escalator and you know left actually lefty came in and made a number of what we'll call cosmetic changes that really helped but it, at the end of the day it was just slapping more lipstick on the pig until we finally were able to get to the GSU Convocation Center. And um, but anyway, getting back to that 90-91 team, they went down to Deland, Florida, with a record of 13 wins and 14 losses. It was a very talented team. Um, one of my all-time five greatest players was on that team, who I just saw when we were in Little Rock, Philip Lucky do. He's the only Georgia State player to average 20 or more points each year that he played at Georgia State. But it was a really, really good team. They went down to Deland, had never won a conference tournament game, and they beat in succession three games. They won three games in three days. They beat the host Stetson Hatters, who were pretty good. 
They beat the University of Texas at San Antonio, who was pretty good. And then they had to face Little Rock. And we were 0-16 against the University of Arkansas Little Rock lifetime. We had never beaten them. And uh, in order to get to the NCAA tournament, we were going to have to beat them. And I remember being so nervous the night before when we were staying at the Holiday Inn down there in Deland, which is now a senior citizen center. The building is still there, but it's a senior citizen assisted living type place. And uh, we ended up beating them by 20, 80 to 60. And that's the first time they won the conference tournament. And it was the first time they were going to make an appearance in the NCAA tournament. And um, Georgia State was the darlings of Atlanta for that week. And I thought we were going to end up getting sent to Arizona to face the University of Nevada, Las Vegas. Uh, Chris Collier, who's probably in my top 10 all-time Georgia State players, was the starting four on that team. And I still communicate with him on a semi-regular basis. Uh, he was a member of the Church of the Seventh-day Adventist. And had we played on Friday night against UNLV in Arizona, Chris would not have been able to play. Now, I don't know if that's the reason, but they ended up keeping Georgia State in Atlanta instead of sending us all the way across the country to ultimately not be able to have our best player on the floor against the number one team. Because there's no question, back in the day when the 60, what was 64 teams, we were 64. We weren't 62 or 63. When you came out of the Transamerica and, and you were 13 and 14 in the regular season, you were the last team out of the 64 teams. So they kept us in Atlanta to play the Arkansas Razorbacks, which they had three future NBA players on that team, Todd Day, um, Lee Mayberry, and Oliver Miller. And we hung with them in the first half. I mean, it wasn't ugly in the first half. It got ugly in the second half. There are some highlights of about six or seven minutes from that game on YouTube if, you know, if you really want to see it. But it was just such a great week. I mean, Georgia State literally – when they would go down to the Omni to practice. Now the Omni sat where State Farm Arena sat. It's the same site. But the CBS cameras would follow the Georgia State basketball players getting on MARTA at the Georgia State Station and follow them taking MARTA up to the Omni Station, getting off and going in and going to shoot around and practice. It was really kind of cool. And the other thing that I'll add to that is that, and I just saw him a couple of nights ago, Bob Reinhart was the head coach. Bob was the first significant hire, in my opinion, in Georgia State basketball history. But Bob has, and at that time in his younger years, had such a great personality that even though we were the 64th team, he was very sought after from a media standpoint in Atlanta. He had the media really wrapped around his finger because he was great for a quote, great for a interview, discussion, whatever. And that certainly helped put Georgia State to the forefront, even in the, you know, the fact that we were kept in Atlanta and uh, had to play the Arkansas Razorbacks. And I remember I've got a big poster of it sitting in my office down at Georgia State. I was sitting right behind the bench with Martin Harmon, who are, he was our sports info guy at the time and did color with me on the radio. We're still good friends to this day. Just being in that atmosphere at the Omni, playing in the NCAA tournament, you know how they say, you, you know, there's nothing like the first time? It was nothing like the, there's never been anything. We've had a lot of exciting moments, but 
when it's not expected and it's never been done before, it's an incredible feeling. Even from where I sat, and I never took a shot and never hit a free throw, but from from being involved with it and traveling with those guys and having seen a lot of losses prior, the fact that they were in the NCAA tournament for the first time was pretty incredible. So I'll juxtapose that um, because obviously the 2001 team was uh, in ways pretty different. You know, that was a team that was very good, um, you know, going to the Sunbelt tournament. They certainly were the favorites and they still ended up going to the NCAA tournament. So what, you know, what was kind of the big difference for you between the 1991 team and the 2001 team, just as far as, you know, expectations and then, you know, the NCAA atmosphere before the the eventual win and then even after that? Well, you fast forward 10 years. We, we had a running joke that we were going to make the NCAA tournament once every 10 years. At least that's the way it started. As big a personality as Bob Reinhart was in Atlanta, because Bob had been with the Hawks for two years before coming to Georgia State, Lefty Drizel in his fourth season, and when he first got to Georgia State, was a for us was a larger than life personality from a bas- from a college basketball standpoint. We had never had anybody at Georgia State who was nationally known like that. And Lefty was used to doing things a certain way at a certain standard. He really, as much as Bob brought Georgia State to the forefront, Lefty forced Georgia State basketball. And to some extent, Georgia State Athletics to grow beyond the boundaries that it had become comfortable operating within. Lefty had been at Maryland in the ACC and had been on the the largest stage in college basketball. And then he was at James Madison for nine years and took them to one NCAA tournament and then wound up the last stop of his career was Georgia State. He was there for five years, five seasons and 10 games. By the time he, by the time at the end, he had really, for lack of a better term, mellowed out some. But when Lefty first got to Georgia State, I mean, he was still kicking and stomping, and he was he was the Lefty Drizel that people remembered from the Maryland days when he was at the height of his career from a coaching standpoint. But again, he forced Georgia he forced Georgia State to grow beyond the boundaries. He also attracted players at a level that we had never been able to recruit or bring into the program prior to that. And the the cornerstone was Kevin Morris, who was another one of these highly regarded New York point guards that, that went to Georgia Tech. And if you follow Georgia Tech back in the day, you know, you, you know the Kenny Andersons and I know Travis Best wasn't from New York, but he was still, when he, when he came, he was very highly regarded. Georgia, and Bobby Cremins was able to bring some incredible players from the Northeast in. Well, anyway, it didn't work out for whatever reason for Kevin. And he transferred cross town to Georgia State. And then Lefty, knowing that he wasn't going to be at Georgia State for for 10 years, really started bringing in the transfers. And next thing you know, Shenard Long is coming in from Georgetown and um, trying to think everybody that was on that team that was a transfer. But Thomas Terrell and Bam Campbell were both highly regarded JUCO players. Um, We were getting kids looking at Georgia State from a college basketball program standpoint that in the past 
probably had not given us a second look. But with Lefty there as the beacon and becoming not only the face of basketball, but the face of the athletic department, it made people look and view and their perception of Georgia State really changed by leaps and bounds. It, it did the same under Bob Reinhart, but not to the same extent that it did with Lefty there. And Lefty was able to bring in some really good players. And the Transamerica was a really good league, but he was able to, uh, he was finally able in his fourth season to win it. Should have won it in the fifth season as well. We lost a heartbreaker down at Florida Atlantic um, to FAU in the Transamerica uh, Athletic Conference Tournament. But everybody said that Georgia State was the toughest job in the country and that you couldn't win there. Well, Bob got us to the NCAA Tournament. Lefty came in and won 16 his first year, 17, 17. And then it blew wide open in the fourth year. We went 29 and five, and we were back in the NCAA Tournament, interestingly enough, in Boise, Idaho. Lefty, again, forced us as a department to grow well beyond the, the expectations that anybody else ever had for the program. Yeah, I was going to mention that because I'm going to have to walk over there when I make this trip to Boise and see the arena where the first tournament win happened. I guess from your perspective on Radio Row in a game like that, it was 50-49 was the final against Wisconsin. What are games like that where, you know, it's obviously the environment speaks for itself, the, the stakes of the game, but just like uh, the low-scoring, grinded-out game where you know what a win would mean for the program? Well, it was an afternoon game, and we had just watched Hampton beat Iowa State. Boise that year had a couple of – they had – in hindsight, they had a couple of early upsets. So all of a sudden, uh, the college basketball world was looking at the pavilion there at Boise State because, you know, the next game was Georgia State. We took out Wisconsin, who had been in the Final Four the year before. What I remember most about that game is that we were down at one point, I believe, by 17 points. And it looked like Wisconsin was going to, you know, run, for lack of a better term, run away with it. Um, Kevin Morris hits a three going into the locker room at halftime. And that seemed to be the spark that Georgia State needed because the Panthers came out in the second half. I don't remember every trip up and down the floor. Um, but they were able to close the gap. And the key down the stretch, and I still remember the kid's name. I've looked him up a couple of times to see what he's been doing. But Wisconsin had a kid, big center, probably about a 6'8", 6'9", kid by the name of Mark Vershaw. We fouled him. He went to the line and missed both free throws. And Shenard Long, well, first of all, either right before that, Daryl Cooper hit. Up until RJ shot in Jacksonville, I was used to kid with Daryl. Cooper hit a three up on top of the right wing and got fouled and hit the free throw and made a four-point play, which to me was the biggest shot in Georgia State basketball history to that point. Uh, but Vershaw, that three in the foul, Vershaw missing the two free throws. Shenard Long um, with a finger roll high off the window that comes this close to getting either blocked or deflected. And we were able to hold on and win that game. And, you know, uh, Lefty's big term that year. Earlier in the year, we had played at UCF. I think we had made the Florida trip. Back in the day, UCF, Florida Atlantic, um, Jacksonville, Stetson were, were in the league. 
And Lefty brought the entire team over to Disney World. They were ushered in to the grassy area in front of Cinderella's castle. They had given every player Mickey Mouse ears. They took a bunch of pictures because Lefty's uh, motto was, we ain't no Mickey Mouse team. And if you can hear him in his Virginia drawl, we, we ain't no Mickey Mouse team. And so I remember running into the press conference in Boise and uh, somebody asked him about, you know, how does it feel to be a, something to the effect about how does it feel to be a mid-major and to pull off this upset and lefty, of course, you know, being a little cocky and having just knocked off Wisconsin said, why don't you go over there and ask the, go, go ask Wisconsin how it feels to lose to a mid-major. And then he said, we ain't no Mickey Mouse team, you know, and, at that point, Georgia State was, I don't, I'm not going to say they were on top of the basketball world, but that was the first win in an NCAA tournament. It was in crazy, exciting fashion, Brady, as you said, low scoring, big plays, the Cooper three in the foul, the two missed free throws, the Chenard long um, finger roll. I've got video of, of the highlight. I've got the highlight video somewhere. I think it's on VHS, so I don't know if I could even play it, but. Um, it was just such an experience for Georgia State with Lefty at the helm to be able to pull off that win. Mike Holmes was there. Um, he was he was you know helping out with Sports Info. He and Charlie Taylor were there, and it was just got, it got crazy. And then we had to play Maryland in the second game, which was even crazier because anybody that knew Lefty Drizel identified him with the Maryland Terrapins and with Len Bias and everything that went down at Maryland during that whole time. People didn't really identify Lefty as much with Davidson and James Madison. He really forged his image and his reputation as the head coach at Maryland. So to be matched up against Maryland in the second game two days later, boy, it became, you know, it took on a life of its own from a story standpoint that Lefty, after leading Georgia State to a win over a previous Final Four team was now going to take on his old Maryland team. It was a huge story, and that Maryland team was really, really good. The whole starting five and the sixth man all made it to the NBA. I mean, they were absolutely loaded. We've hit the, the first two tourney games, so it feels like we should just roll along into the next basketball era. We'll, we'll wrap around to football at some point, but, I mean, I guess my question would be now that we're, a, you know, little less than a decade on from the RJ shot, just those teams. What stands out from the Ron Hunter era, early days especially maybe, that made you think like, all right, this is about to flip in a certain way? Well, again, you know, I saw this when Lefty took over. Lefty took over from Carter Wilson, who had taken over from Bob Reinhardt. Lefty took Carter's players and won 16, then 17, then 17, then 29. He took Georgia State basketball to a level that, a lot of us didn't know if it could ever reach, not the 16 of the 17, but the 29 in year four. And Lefty proved that you could be ultra successful in men's basketball at Georgia State, even, even with the sports arena and everything that went along with trying to recruit players to that facility. I mean, think about that, Brady, how tough that would be if we were still playing in the sports arena and Jonas is trying to recruit players to play in there. I mean, Ron Hunter did it. Um, Hunter took over from Rod Barnes. 
you know, Barnes tried to go the transfer route and it really, it just didn't work. And the Colonial, again, was no joke back in the day. When we were in the Colonial, it was no joke. It was a really, really good league. Uh, everywhere you went, Hofstra, uh, Northeastern, uh, all the Virginia schools, it, there was, you know, Towson was a game that we would consider and not an easy win, but a game that we could compete in. Um, so Ron Hunter comes in and takes, and Lene, by the way, Rob, Rod Barnes never won more than 12 games. Nice guy. He was very good to me. They lost 80, 8-0 games in four seasons. So we were back down. You know, Lefty had taken us up here. The program had sunk back down under Barnes to where it was when Ron Hunter came in. Hunter comes in and takes Rod Barnes' players and wins 22 games that first year. He may have added a player or two, but for the most part, the core of that team was the same team that, you know, struggled to win 12 games. And Hunter, you know, you know how they say sometimes it just takes a different voice in the locker room? We saw that with Lefty. We definitely saw that with Ron Hunter. And shifting over to football, we saw that with Sean Elliott when he took Trent Miles' players and went to that Auto Nation Cure Bowl the second time and, and won the bowl game. That's to take nothing away from Trent Miles. It was great to see him recently when Georgia State played at LSU. It's proof that he brought in some really good players, that Coach Elliott was, with a different message, whatever that message was, was able to elevate the program to the next level. Ron Hunter did that uh, with Georgia State. And the reason why Hunter was interesting, because I remember when I, when I was told that we were hiring Ron Hunter from IUPUI, the other interesting story about that is, I, I don't remember if it was the year before or two years before, we were playing uh, at a tournament at the Ocean Center in Daytona Beach. Three games in three days. I forget the name of the tournament. I should remember it. Um, one of the three games that we played, I know we played Howard, and I think we played Bowling Green um, out of, Ohio, I think it's Ohio. One of those three games was against IUPUI, coached by Ron Hunter. He ended up beating Georgia State in that game. I never met him that afternoon, but little did we know that about a year and a half or so later, or two years, whatever, or a season later, I don't remember exactly, he would be, be he would be getting introduced as the next head coach at Georgia State. And he certainly brought an intensity and a different message into the locker room. And the other thing that that Hunter did. Once he got in there and, of course, was able to convince R.J., because R.J. had some power five offers, but he somehow, you know, R.J. ended up at Georgia State, which is one of the great recruiting stories of Georgia State. Um, Ron Hunter always had a transfer or two waiting in the wings to be eligible the next season, whether it was Ryan Harrow, who's in my top five all-time greatest players at Georgia State, whether it was Manny Atkins, whether it was Curtis Washington, and I'm sure there's a couple that I'm not thinking of, but he always had a player or two, usually a high major transfer, waiting to play that next season. And that really worked well for him because at his, you know, he was never going to bring in a bad apple to the locker room. And he never, as far as I know, he never did. The players that transferred in, most of them, except for Curtis Washington, 
were Atlanta kids originally who we weren't able to get, like a Kevin Ware. I don't want to forget Kevin, who you know transferred from Louisville after his injury, but he's he's from Rockdale County. Manny Atkins played at Tucker. Um, who else did I mention? Yeah, not to interrupt, but they don't win that tournament game against Georgia Southern without Kevin Ware. He was the only one who's making shots that day. Yeah, well, you remember what the final score was? 38-36. I was about to say, yeah. It was real. Kevin had like 16 yeah. points or whatever. Yeah, I think that we were all there, I believe, in the band. I was watching. Uh, I David was watching. The trip. Okay, but I think Should that's all. Listening. That game was, there you go, always be plugging. Honestly, honestly, I didn't know about the radio, like how easy it was to access the radio. Because I was off, I was uh, back home at the time. So I was at my parents' place. And I thought it was like going to be hard to find the radio call to listen to the broadcast and yeah. it happened to have been on tv so i was like oh this is fine i'm just messing with you i say that to everybody as brady knows yeah but that game i think is ingrained in all of us and it would be in a different it would be in the same category as louisiana lost the year before if they had lost it but that was probably one of the more painful experiences of just like how agonizing that win and obviously in that game georgia southern had a shot to win it and if that had happened two tournaments in a row in that moment to that team I don't know if any of the you know fans would have recovered from that. Brady, I, I was set up radio. The radio for each team was set up right behind the bench in an elevated area, and I can still remember standing up and looking to my left in perfect trajectory with the basket and thinking, and I'm not going to cuss, but oh my, that shot looked like it was going in, and I'm like, please, it happened so quickly that when it ricocheted off the side of the back of the rim, man, I, I don't, I mean, I breathed a huge, huge sigh of relief because that would have been a horrendous loss, not only to lose that way, but to lose that way to your in-state rival as bad as that loss was to the raging Cajuns the year before in a game we should have won. Obviously we've arrived at the moment, Jacksonville, Florida, the game really Georgia State Athletics, because you talked about how they were put on the map with the 91 game, the 2001 game. But I mean, I think the RJ shot is going to keep showing up in those March Madness clips for decades at this point. And, you know, we were I think I can say this time correctly. We were all there for that one in Jacksonville and certainly a moment we won't forget. But you talked about it with the Wisconsin game where they were down. You said they were down 17. Georgia State was down 13, 12 with two and a half minutes to go. And that one was where it, it was one of those magic fort moments where everything that had to go right did and it clicked and then ended with that magical moment, magical March moment. Right. And it, and it was all precipitated by one of the five greatest players in Georgia state basketball history. Who knows what kind of numbers he would have had had he stayed and played his fourth season. But I was of course excited that he became a Boston Celtic, you know, for that one season. Yeah, you know, I mean, I can still remember. I have a, I have a, there's, there's, I've got a picture of it somewhere. I don't know if it's um, in the office, but as soon as RJ hit that shot, he came over and stood right in front of me where I was seated because the Georgia State fans were all behind me. You, were you behind me? Like, were you, were you sitting yeah. opposite the bench? In we the were car? behind the, the basket. We were all in the band. Oh, you were in the goal. Okay. I can like close my eyes and remember. I mean, listen, is is TJ Shipes 
quick pass back. Is that not the greatest assist in Georgia State basketball history? Or one of them, one of the two? Um, I can Number remember one. when the shot went in, the roar of the crowd behind me and that energy like raining down on top of my head and on top of my shoulders. I wish it was something that I could like bottle and open up every once in a while and, and go through that again. But that was just a crazy two and a half, three minutes of basketball that really, you, you know, you don't know if you're ever going to experience something like, like that in your, we'll call it our sports lifetime, where it means so much to us. We see great plays across the landscape in college and pro basketball and pro foot. We see great plays, but this one means so much to us because we're all Georgia State people. We're all Georgia State alumni. The program is part of us. We follow it, and we feel like we're a part of it, even though we're not on the floor or the field participating. We participate in our own ways. I don't know that we'll ever experience anything quite like that, where you erase a 12 or a 13-point deficit. RJ scored them all, didn't he? I think there was one basket that was not – I think it was a couple of free throws that Ryan Green hit. Okay. Um, but pretty much every other point was RJ. Which, by the way, great story. Ryan Green, a walk-on who ends up earning a scholarship, he scored 11 points in that game. You know, yeah, they, it, they, it don't wanna, the, they don't get there without Kevin Ware. They don't get to the win without Ryan Green because Ryan Harrow didn't play in that game. Right. You know, you wouldn't have drawn up – an upset there losing one of your best two players there on that team, but they found a way. Yeah. Ryan green was huge in, in that. I think we interviewed him over the last couple of years on a Panther insider podcast during the anniversary of that. But you know, it's, it's so cool to be a part of the program, but to also be able to be a part and witness great players do their thing, whether it's RJ Hunter performing like that, um, whether it's being around a, a guy like Lefty Drizel for five years and 10 games and Shenard Long and Kevin Morris and, you know, the, just being around Ryan Harrow and, you know, the great players that have come through the program and even the players that we would not, that we would not term as being great players, but players that played a big role in elevating the program from one year to the next. You know, everything that happened in 2001 in some small way, was built on the backs of the 1991 team who did it for the first time. And everything that, you know, Hunter built in some small way was, you know, built and was and benefited from what Lefty did to elevate the program from where it was when he got there in the mid-90s right up through 2002. So... You know, it's been a it's been great to be a part of that and to be able to witness it. It means more to you and me because we're we're actual Georgia State alumni. This is not really just a job. You know, we're we're invested in it because it's a job, but we're invested in it emotionally because we're Georgia State alumni and we are in our own way a part of the program. You know, win or lose, we're we're a part of the program when it's when it's in its low point. We're part of the program when it's on its high point as well. And, you know, Brady, you've learned that as well, being around football and basketball, you know, in the time that you've been covering Georgia State. So, um, you know, to, uh, 
RJ's shot, like you said, they're going to show that forever. That's one of the great plays, great shots in NCAA tournament history. And I mean, I'm just, I always just selfishly feel fortunate that I was number one there to call it and see my alma mater upset Baylor. It almost feels fitting. You know, we did a lot on basketball because it's almost mirroring that for much of the history, the big ticket sport for Georgia State was basketball. And then 2008 comes around, the foundation is laid for football to start in 2010. And for you at that point, having done radio for as long as you had for Georgia State, how was it to finally be able to sink your teeth into Georgia State football and call those games? Well, you've heard it before. We never thought, having been there since 1980, the spring of 82, I think, or the fall of 82, we never thought there would be football at Georgia State. Uh, Dr. Carl Patton, who was the president at the time, didn't want to hear it. You know, that Georgia State was not set up structurally to be able to, you know, be a college football playing university. You know, one of the one of the interestingly enough, one of the podcasts that I did uh, was with Dr. Sherman Day, who was the athletic director in a, at Georgia State when I first got there, and later went on to become the interim president at Georgia State, and had been at Georgia State since 1967. And one of the things we talked about is why did Georgia State in 1996 not take over Atlanta Fulton County Stadium and start a football program? The facility was there. It was just like taking over Turner Field and converting it to Center Park Credit Union Stadium. But as he goes on to say, I mean, where Georgia State was as a university at that time period, and not just from a financial standpoint, but from an infrastructure standpoint and a personnel standpoint, it, it just never would have worked. But it would have made total sense when you just look at, you know, you made A plus B equals C. What we did with Turner Field and the conversion could have been done if Georgia State had gotten Fulton County Stadium in 1997 or late 96 after the Olympics. Um, you know, I worked because we didn't have football. When I was at WCNN uh, during my time there from 88 until 90, whatever, I was part of the Georgia Tech pregame and the fifth quarter show with John Dewberry. And that was my connection to football. And then a friend of mine was the radio voice up at Furman University in Greenville, which was and still is a pretty good, at the time, 1AA or FCS program. And Yeah. You the, know, first, he up, huh? the first technical Furman transfer to Georgia State football that paid dividends. Exactly. And so I remember Chuck calling me one day. His name was Chuck Hushin. He called one day during the offseason and said, hey, would you be interested in working with me on the Furman University football radio broadcast. And I'm like, sure. I mean, this was an opportunity to be a part of a broadcast and not just be the pregame and the postgame. And there were no opportunities. Georgia State didn't have it. And so in Atlanta, that was the only opportunity. Um, I, knew the, I knew the longtime radio guy down at Georgia Southern. He's no longer with us, but I would never have – Number one, he didn't ask, and I would have never have gone down to Georgia Southern and worked with those guys, even though I did like uh, Nate, who was the radio guy at the time. So anyway, for 12 years, I mean, I drove back up and down Interstate 85 from Alpharetta, or Johns Creek now, and was a part of the Furman radio network for 12 years. And most of the time, Furman was pretty dadgum good. 
As a matter of fact, the year while I was there, the one year they made the national championship against Montana and Chattanooga, I couldn't be with them because at that point of the calendar year, Georgia State basketball had already started. Lefty was there and we were playing at a tournament of champions in Charlotte and I had to be up there to do those games and I couldn't go with them to to Chattanooga for the championship game, which they ultimately ended up losing to Montana. But so I kind of cut my teeth doing some local high school football that's at uh, Campbell High School in Smyrna on Smyrna Cable TV on Friday nights and did a little bit of high school football up in Gainesville as a fill-in. And then the Furman opportunity came up. And so I jumped at that. It was a lot of driving back and forth, but it was definitely worth it. And when I started that, I had no idea Georgia State was going to start football. So I didn't go into it thinking, well, I'll do this so that when Georgia State starts, I'll be able to hit the ground running. Had no idea until 2008 that Georgia State, as you said, Brady, was going to start a football program. But we had a great we had a great five person crew up at Furman. Um, I'm still in contact with a couple couple three of those guys today, and um, it it did transition nicely into 2010 with Georgia State starting football after ramping up during 2008, 2009, and finally getting on the field at the Georgia Dome in 2010. I guess what, I don't know, moments or just kind of the progression you've seen from the football program. Obviously, you mentioned it earlier, some real low lows through there, um, but you know, it's to the point where last year the team went four and eight and it was pretty well a disappointment across the board for the fan base and a lot of animosity about, you know, this team can't go four and eight. And that was more games than I saw them win my first three years of college combined. So I guess does show to some level to where they have gotten to. Well, yeah, the four and eight year was disappointing. What made it a little more disappointing was there were so many winnable games. I mean, what did we lose seven games by one score? Was it seven or eight? Had leads in the second half of seven of the eight of them. Yeah. So they were all, for the most part, you would would term those winnable games. And then don't forget, they were coming off the eight-win season the year prior and the win in the the convincing win over Ball State in the Camellia Bowl. And everybody thought, rightfully so, that we were going to take the next step and go from eight wins to maybe nine or ten wins and begin to try to run – with what we'll call the big dogs in the Sun Belt. And that didn't happen, obviously. We dropped back to four and eight. You know, the one thing I liked that we did this year, I remember, I I don't necessarily say it on the radio, but um, from a scheduling standpoint, opening up at South Carolina, which, you know, we made some mistakes in that game, and then coming home and losing to North Carolina, which that was a winnable game, as you remember. Even with all of that, it was nice to finally open up the season with two wins at home against Rhode Island and Yukon, go on the road, beat Charlotte, go on the road, beat Coastal Carolina. We're 3-0 for the first time. Then we're 4-0 for the first time. It was nice to start the season with a lot of positivity around the program as opposed to starting out 1-3. and three. Or, you know, you dig yourself in a hole like that and you spend the next four to five weeks of the season just trying to get back to 500 or a game above 500. And that's a risk. So I like the fact that we scheduled this past season to get off on the right foot. Now, what ultimately hurt us was 
the second half of the season. Whatever happened coming out of the locker room at Louisiana in the second half, we never recovered from that. I don't know what ha- I don't know what it was. I mean, along with the fact that you know, even though they were only six and six this year, Georgia Southern was lying in wait for us. We had a short week. We played on late on a Saturday night. They didn't get back until Sunday. They were, you know, then the Monday, Tuesday practice, Wednesday they leave and they go down and they stay somewhere in South Georgia. And next thing you know, you're playing on Thursday. They really didn't have a lot of time to prepare and kind of bounce back from Louisiana to get ready for Georgia Southern. But then you start the second half of that gauntlet and you're playing James Madison and you're playing Appalachian State. You know, we... You, I mean, you know, we haven't beaten Appalachian State yet. So we're, we were playing clearly, you know, the better teams. The biggest disappointment to me was that ODU game because we should have won that game. And we would, we, would, we would have ultimately gone from four and eight to seven and five, a three game in the win column turnaround. We came within two seconds of being able to do that. Six and six, if you want to put the positive spin on it, which I have, look, we're still plus two in the win column from the year prior, and we're back in a bowl game. So at the end of the day, I'd much rather be where we are today than where we were at this time a year ago, which was four and eight and season over. A couple of the maybe spots you've gotten to call a game from, whether this is football or basketball, that you really are glad you got the opportunity to, and maybe a couple more that are pending, whether they're on the schedule or like you'd wink, wink, nudge, nudge, love to get on the schedule to call a game there. Where where, where would I like to go? Yeah. And where have you been that you have that well, stood out to you? I mean, there's been a lot of cool places. Um, I have been, there's, I think there's only three or four States that I've not been in ultimately with Georgia, you know, with, with Georgia state, the Dakotas, and somewhere else up there between Georgia state football and basketball. I've been, you know, going to Hawaii twice with basketball was fantastic. I mean, I probably still would never have been in Hawaii if not for lefty Drizel, because we went there twice, even though he only went once Mike Perry let us the next time. Um, the pit at uh, New Mexico historic place. The Huntsman Center. Remember, the pit is where NC State upset Houston, and I'd watched that video a million times. It was cool to be in that building. The Huntsman Center at the University of Utah, which was we played a preseason NIT game there. Um, but the reason why I, in my own way, really enjoyed that was because that was where the 79 NCAA championship game between Larry Bird and Magic Johnson was played. And being a Boston guy and a big bird fan, and I like magic too, but to be in that building where that happened to me was pretty cool. Um, as a side note, we played it, we played the University of Detroit one year at Cobo Hall in Detroit. Um, as you know, having seen Kiss now 63 times. Kiss's first Alive album was recorded mostly at Cobo Hall in Detroit. So for me, twofold, it was really cool to finally be at Cobo Hall. I'm not even sure if it's still standing. But to to do a game where Kiss Alive was mostly recorded, for me, was one of those places that I'd always wanted to visit. 
look, you can throw in Duke a few years ago. That was kind of cool to be on coach, to be at uh, Cameron Indoor Stadium because I missed the first trip to Duke. Georgia State's played Duke twice. The first time was RJ's freshman year. I missed that trip because I was with football at Maine and the next day it was going to be Bill Curry's last game as head coach. So, you know, I have to go with football. When when football and basketball collide, I go with football and I sent uh, Robbie to go to Duke to do that game. But then we played there under Rob Lanier and I'm not a Duke fan, but I respect the program and I respect everything they've done. It was cool to do a game from there. One game I regret not, one trip I regret not making was my very first year. And I was just a part of the broadcast. I was not a play-by-play person in 1982, but they played Michael Jordan at Carmichael Auditorium in Chapel Hill. And I was not able to make that trip. And it was Jordan, Sam Perkins, Warren Martin, Jimmy Black, Matt Doherty. I mean, it was a very good Dean Smith, North Carolina team. I think I'm trying to remember if James Worthy was on that team as well. He would have been around that time, yeah. Yep. So this would have been 83. I've still got the media guide. Brent brought me a media guide back. I've still got it in my Georgia State box down in the basement. I regret, and I let him, you know, even when I talk to him now, every time I'll say, you know, I'm still pissed at you for not taking me to Chapel Hill in 1983 when we when you got when Georgia State played at North Carolina. Even if I wasn't going to be in the broadcast, it would have been cool just to be there. You know, and Jordan was young. I mean, people knew who he was, but he had not yet become the aura that he later became as a college player and ultimately obviously, you know, as a professional. Uh, but it would have been cool to at least be a part of the broadcast at at Carmichael Auditorium. Um, but you know, the Stan Sheriff Center in Honolulu, um, Montana, Wyoming, um, all those, all the places that you wouldn't normally ever get to go to unless you're going with a college basketball or a college football team were always some of the coolest places for me because I knew that if it wasn't for this road trip, 99.9%. I'll probably never come to this athletic facility in my lifetime. Uh, Stokely Arena in Knoxville. When we were there in 2019 for football, which we ultimately, as you remember, won that football game, I said a couple of three times on the broadcast that day, you realize we're about 500 or 1,000 feet, I don't remember exactly how far, away from Stokely Arena, where in 1984, an 0-5 Georgia State team just back from SMU in Oklahoma went up to Knoxville as a huge underdog to Tennessee and beat the Vols at Stokely Arena on a Tony Graham last-second jump shot, 52-50. to My big regret, technology-wise, is that I didn't record it. I was probably, well, I was extremely young, but I was probably so caught up in the moment <laughs> that we might win this game that I forgot to even roll on my handheld tape recorder and I really wish I had that because that was Georgia State's first win ever over a power five program and to do that uh, at Tennessee which was a pretty good basketball program obviously in those days was that was huge for Georgia State and I've still got the clippings in that Georgia State box in the basement I still have the Knoxville paper and the Atlanta paper uh, from that win 
So that was a cool experience. And then, of course, all the NCAA tournaments were extremely cool. And I, those are things you just always remember where you were when, you know, like a couple of years ago, when we go, when we head down to New Smyrna Beach on vacation, we stopped and went to a Jacksonville Jumbo Shrimp minor league baseball game. What sits right next to the stadium? The Coliseum in Jacksonville. I came right out of that baseball game and I'm staring right at the front doors to the Coliseum. And I said, that is a cool building and nothing will, well, among the greatest moments in my broadcasting life took place right through those doors on that floor in that arena when RJ hit that shot. And every time I go by that building, I replay that play in my head. So it's crazy because you truthfully have seen it all with this university. 41 of the, well, I'm, I'm, the, the program, when it, when it became what we call division one, I mean, Georgia state basketball existed in the, 50s and but the first year of what we're going to call ncaa sanctioned division one basketball was the year i was born it was the 1963-64 season so the program is as old as me if you want to start it there and that's where they started keeping records from the 63 team on so the yeah i mean the, i'm 60 and the program's 60 and i've seen 41 of the 60 years so the one thing that I didn't see was that first winning season, I think in 75, 76, they went 12 and 11. And that, that's the first time Georgia State even had a winning program. But I have talked to that coach a couple of times, Jack Waters, who I believe is still with us and lives just over the state, the Georgia-Alabama border over in Alabama. Well, you I'd, have... love to, I'd love to be able to go over there and do an interview with him, if at all possible, because, again, he's part of that early history of the program well you opened up the kiss store and so we got to get there obviously anyone who knows you knows the kiss connection i think would you say 63 now with msg 63 yeah it should be 65 i had tickets to two shows chattanooga and new york city and for two various reasons couldn't make either of those shows i guess i'll take this one a different direction maybe just try and get a new angle on the kiss thing a song that you prefer the studio version of rather than the live version, and then a song that absolutely, when you're at a concert, you're ready for that one to come be performed live. Um, you know, there's songs that, that I wish that they played that really haven't cracked the set list, but when you've been around 50 years and put out all those albums, it's it's hard to play everything. And as they explain, you got to play a lot of what a bulk of the audience wants to hear not a diehard like me who wants the seventh track on the third album, you know? Um, boy, that's a good question. Um, you know, certainly Detroit rock city, uh, which is what they open with or what they have continued to open with right up through the last two shows at Madison square garden. But then there are tracks that, you know, off of unmasked, like easy as it seems. I mean, one thing that kiss has done is they've kind of changed with the times over the we'll call it the the second third of their career because the first time i saw them was 1979 in madison square garden and they had just put out dynasty which has a great song on their magic touch but it was have you ever heard the song i was made for loving you, Are you familiar yeah. with that? okay yeah. so that you know as he tells the story disco in the late 70s was huge 
And of course, Casablanca, which was Kiss's label, was a big disco label. And Paul Stanley said, I want to see if I can write a hit song that's a disco song. So he wrote that to prove that he could write a disco song that would be huge. And as big as it was in the United States, it was even bigger over in Europe. But he proved that he could do it. And so that was what they call kind of Kiss's disco connection. But then you look at some of the pop albums that followed, like, again, Unmasked. And then when grunge hit in the 90s, you know, they put out Carnival of Souls, which is a very heavy, what I'll call dark, grungy. If Kiss was ever going to be, if Kiss was ever going to sound like Nirvana or Soundgarden, this is the album that was going to compare them to the 90s grunge scene. And uh, again, they proved that they could do it because it's, it's, again, another one of those albums, they don't play anything off of it. Just like they don't play anything off of um, um, uh, I'm at a loss I'm trying to think of the name of the record, but um, they proved that they could uh, that they could change with the times, and every song wouldn't be and sound like rock and roll all night and party every day, which is how they end every show. And I like that song, and I know why they close every concert with it. But it's one of those songs, if they said, hey, we're going to drop that song from the set list, I'd be okay. That, that's fine with me. But some of the songs on Carnival of Souls, uh, some of the stuff off of Unmasked, you know, I think if they go back, speaking of technology, um, I don't know if you saw what I posted on Facebook when I was in New York a couple of weeks ago. Um, I, I did a little bit of the Kiss historical walk, walking tour of New York. And one of the places we went was Electric Lady Studios. And if if you know the history of Electric Lady Studios, that's the studio that Jimi Hendrix started. And Kiss recorded their demos there and later came back and recorded Dress to Kill there. And Paul and Gene will always say, man, with technology as it is today, the first three albums don't have that same oomph, that heaviness that they would have if they put those albums out today. And I know everything's being remastered, but what came out in 73, 74, 75, 76, if you recorded those today, they would sound different. And I would love to hear what those sound like from the band today with technology being what it is, as opposed to what they sounded like. I still like what they sounded like because that's what it was. And 73 and 74 and 75 but you know it's one of those things i brady i think you've heard me say i don't i don't hunt i don't fish i don't play golf i don't play tennis um i don't really do a lot of things other than georgia state football basketball baseball and follow a rock band around as well as a few other bands but you know kiss has certainly been number one it's been a part of my life since i think i was 12 or 13 years old well, I think we could probably go forever. Um, this has been awesome. Glad you could help us mark the 200 mark, and we'll certainly not make it episode 400 the next time we get you on. <laughs> we could talk about just the general state of Georgia State Athletics and not make it the whole uh, history, but obviously great to get all of that firsthand accounts of Georgia State Athletics from the voice of the Panthers, Dave Cohen. 
Well, it's been great to be on with you guys. And uh, when real quick, when you talk about seeing the seeing the program over the years, and Brady, you know the first floor of the Georgia State Sports Arena. When you go to that back hallway, like you're walking down to the practice gym, on the left, there's a little there's one door with a suite of five little offices. And that was the entire Georgia State Athletic Department when the building was still the rec center. Your athletic director and the other four full-time employees that had an office in there, that was the entire athletic department. And of course, one of those offices ultimately became Lefty Drizel's first office. But my point is to see Georgia State Athletics grow from that little suite of five offices into what it is today with football and being back in the Sun Belt and being and about to head into our sixth bowl game, it really is kind of cool to look back at where it was when I got there and how far it's come in 41 years that I've witnessed it to where it is today. And it's an been a, it's been a great journey, but it's been fun to see Georgia State Athletics grow like it has. Thanks so much for the time today, Dave. We really appreciate it. Yep, great being on with you guys. We'll see you at the uh, Convocation Center or Center Park Stadium or Brady, I'll see you in Boise. See you in Boise. (laughs) All right. Once again, big thanks to Dave Cohen for joining us on this week's podcast. And that is all the time we do have for today. But of course, before we get you out of here, we'll run down what's coming up this week in Georgia State Athletics, starting with today as of the release of this podcast. Women's basketball heads up to Rock Hill, South Carolina to face Winthrop at 6 p.m. You can watch that game on ESPN+. Moving on to Saturday, it's women's basketball at Clemson, 2 p.m. Uh, and men's basketball all the way out in Provo, Utah, taking on the BYU Cougars at 9 p.m. Eastern. That game will be on ESPN+, Plus, or you can listen to Dave Cohen on the call, WRSFM 88.5. Moving on to Tuesday, also two events, men's basketball hosting Tacoa Falls at 11 a.m. in the Convocation Center. You can catch that one on ESPN+. Plus. And women's basketball hosts LaGrange College at 1.30 p.m. in the Convocation Center. That game will also be on ESPN+. Plus. And that's everything happening in Georgia State Athletics this week following the conclusion of exams and fall graduation. Of course, coming up next week is the bowl game. And then after that, basketball picks up into conference play. But we will catch you in the next episode next week with more on the bowl game and more discussion of basketball. Have a fantastic week and go Panthers.